Thanks for joining us, Nicholas. Sure. Um, do it. Um, so I'd like to start and ask you what were the themes that um, inspired Waterfalls and maybe you could start to share something about your creative process. Sure. Thank you so much, Bright Moments, for, for having me here. My collection, Waterfall, is a, a collection of 100 works. It started 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I did a, a series of, of six works called Waterfalls, and it's a series of abstract animation. And like with a lot of my other abstract animation, when I start a project, it usually never ends. I just keep working on it. So over the last 10 years, I kept revisiting the project. And then we talked with Cess. Uh, we, were, I was, we were discussing about making a, a, a series of 100 works. And that is uh, officially the biggest collection of works I've ever done in NFTs and in general. And I wanted to go back to Waterfalls because it's a really personal project. And it's a, it's a project I was really, really excited to, to revisit. So, as I was saying earlier, they're um, abstract animations that are made uh, non-generatively. So I'm not a generative artist. I do everything uh, sort of manually. Uh, there's an image in the, in the magazine that sort of like illustrates my process really well, um, this image. So most of the animations are, I do, especially for waterfalls, are generated like this. There's two images overlapping. One image contains um, the information of color. And then another image is overlaid on top of it, and it's usually black lines with negative space in between. And the overlapping of these two images creates the, the illusion of the third image and the final animation. And so that process is called Moiré pattern. And Moiré pattern is a, a sort of optical phenomenon that exists in kinetic art and optical arts. Uh, it also exists in digital art. It's a process that I've come to sort of appropriated my practice over the last 15 years, and that is a process I used for Waterfalls. And as the name suggests, Waterfalls is a series of abstract animations focusing on water, and it's particularly inspired by the ocean. Each animation uses a pretty minimal visual language from early computer graphics and digital abstraction to try and evoke uh, water and liquid motions. So. Uh, I try to come back to like very essential elements of digital animation. Uh, what type of motion, what type of rhythm, what type of texture I can express with this very minimal visual language to try and evoke and suggest something that relates to the ocean. And the reason why I was saying it's a, it's a really personal project is because I grew, I grew up close to the ocean, like the first 25 years of my life. The ocean is like a huge uh, influence and inspiration in my work. Uh, and so Waterfall, I think, is sort of a very good symbol of, of, of that influence. It's like a very, very personal work. Was there something specific about London that kind of influenced <laughs> other work you want to show here, the, the, the fact that it would be exhibited in this city? I grew up the first 25 years of my life in, in coastal cities in France. Um, and uh, tourism, and in particular coastal tourism, uh, is something that has been very important in my upbringing. My parents are like a pure product of like coastal tourism, and I've become a pure product of that because I grew up by these coastal cities and being at the ocean and doing like ocean-related activities was just like deeply ingrained in me. And as I became an artist and I started seeing like the 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 influence this had on my upbringing, I started looking at the history of coastal tourism. And the funny thing is that. Well, coastal tourism started for the most part in London in the mid-18th century. Uh, during the Industrial Revolution, 
a lot of the elites, the aristocrats and intellectuals started going to uh, the Atlantic Ocean to take cold water baths for a lot of reasons. One of them being um, they really believed that it would help uh, with health, that it would be like rejuvenating. Uh, there was a lot of tuberculosis at the time and people thought that it would help with tuberculosis. And so yeah, like this whole sort of uh, idea of, of tourism and especially of coastal tourism of being at the ocean started in London. So it's interesting for me to show that work here because it feels like it's kind of a, it's kind of a loop. And the other thing I want to mention about that that I think kind of plays a part in the work is that what's interesting about that history of coastal tourism is that it's a really important moment in uh, our general relationship to the ocean, because before that, the ocean was feared. It wasn't a place you wanted to be at. It was like you, you were at the ocean only if you had to like do work at the ocean, but it was not a desirable environment. Uh, and so what's really interesting is that this whole culture of coastal tourism changed our relationship to the ocean. All of a sudden, it's like a place of, you know, it's a place of leisure, it's a place of, of rest, it's a place of healthy activities, and it becomes like a, yeah, it becomes like an attractive and desirable place. And I think like this sort of ambivalent feeling and sort of fascination for the ocean as like a place of leisure and a place of pleasure, but also like a place of maybe like fear, unknown of mythologies is, I think definitely influenced or inspired the, the whole series and this sort of fascination for this water motion and what they, you know, what they, how they resonate with us basically. Another thing that comes up when you talk about the work is the importance of memory and how kind of your upbringing in coastal cities um, influences the work as something that um, your memory is imbued with these images of liquid motion and, and of the ocean and um, being exposed to the landscape and kind of living, living, living in that landscape. Um, so could you say more about um, how you think about memory in relation to, to the ocean or how um, you would situate that in, in your work? Yeah, I, I've always worked with animated GIFs whenever I, I started making the work that I make today around like 2008 and very quickly animated GIFs became like a, a format that I wanted to explore, in particular using this visual language of early computer graphics. So graphics really coming from the 80s and the early 90s, so pixelated patterns, limited color palettes, like images with a limited amount of visual information. Um, and I've always come to see GIFs as these sort of little time capsules on like a poetic level. I've always seen them as this sort of like never ending moving images that almost like encapsulate a particular moment or a particular space and they just kind of play. Um, and I, I see that in relation to memory a lot because I think a lot of my work are inspired by particular memories and then I try to uh, imbue these memories into, into the animation, into animated GIFs. The whole collection is actual animated GIFs as well. They're 4K resolution, which was kind of a, a challenge to, to make. And I mean, I think water as well in relation to memory is like something quite interesting on like different level. Uh, one level I can think of is that when you know, often when you go to a body of water, it's a, it can be a moment of reflection, it can be a moment of contemplation, it can be a moment where like you reminisce certain things. Like another aspect I think uh, has to do with uh, 
memories and fragments of memories in relation to landscape. So for me, when I remember a landscape, uh, I remember fragments. You know, if I remember, let's say, like a, a, a coastal landscape, I remember the heat of the sun, maybe like the texture of the sun, like the sound of the waves on the shore. It's all these little fragments that are kind of compose a sort of a memory of a certain landscape. And I sort of approach abstract animations like that. When I, when I make these animations, I, as I was saying earlier, I have like these two images. I work in Photoshop, so I have these two images overlapping and I kind of stretch them, I, I try different things. And then this little, either this little motif or these motions or these textures are gonna appear and I'm gonna be like, oh, that reminds me of like a liquid motion or that reminds me of like sand texture or that reminds me of like the wind blowing on the water surface. And it's really effectively, it's almost like trying to like dig out memories out of my, sometimes they're probably imagined, sometimes they're real memories, but it's really trying to dig out this sort of memories and. Uh, and sort of identify them visually through abstraction. Maybe you could say something about how this approach to, to memory um, has also influenced the exhibition design because the setup is quite minimal and it's focused on one single large screen. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit of a challenge because I've done a lot of exhibition in the past. It was my first exhibition where there was gonna be a live reveal and I had a really hard time wrapping my head around the, the live reveal. But one idea I, I wanted is um, I wanted to go back to like some of the essential elements of my, of my practice of making exhibition and, and, and one of them is like how do you scale watching a work on a personal screen, on like a laptop or like on your phone, how do you scale that experience into a space? And so like for example like when, you, when you're at home or you're like on your couch or like on your desk and you're looking at a work full screen, it's a very intimate experience. And very often you can get into that space where like there's nothing that distracts you and it's gonna be this one-on-one -on -one relationship with the work. Um, and it's not easy to translate that into a space because if you go to like a typical white cube gallery and you put a screen on the wall, it's not gonna be that intimate. So you're gonna be really aware of your body, you're gonna be aware of like the people around you, you're gonna be aware of the noise. So how do you, how do you create an experience in a physical space that kind of takes some of the qualities of that experience of like, being on my laptop watching a work, how do I scale that to a space? One analogy is theater, because when you go to see a film in the theater, you have this one-one relationship to the screen. Uh, there's people around you, but you tend to like forget about them, and you, you have this like very privileged and intimate relationship to the screen, and then it's scaled to the, you know, to the human body, to human architecture. So that has uh, effectively impacted very much the, <laughs> the very minimal, design of, uh, of the exhibition. And I think I wanted to do something minimal as well for that idea of like the relationship between like water and memory and abstraction. And so when someone enters the space where the work is revealed, they have this moment, this very intimate moment with the work where they can really like dive into it and see what this work, how this work resonates with them if it brings like certain aspects. Another important element is that I collaborated with like a, a very dear friend of mine on the soundtrack. Uh, my friend Yusu, who's also like a Vancouver-based Vancouver music producer, created a soundtrack for the project. She's seen all the work and uh, I sort of like told her about this experience I was trying to create and so she created this very minimal soundtrack. That also I think relates to like rituals, 
memories and something very contemplative and meditative. Yeah, one phrase that you've used kind of in relation to this idea of the work being um, a space of contemplation is mm-hmm. the screen as a window. Um, yeah. And that is, of course, a very interesting metaphor because the, the canvas of the painting as a window has such a long history. Um, mm-hmm. And you do something different with it, with these works that are sort of oscillating between abstraction and landscape. Well, yeah. So like, as you said, like the window is like this sort of like ongoing metaphor in like the history of art. And then all of a sudden screens and personal screens come into play and the window becomes much more dynamic. The window is backlit, the window shows like moving images. And that, that metaphor has always been exciting to me, I think for many reasons. One of them maybe being, uh, you know, that like one of my first experience with screens was early video games. And the experience of playing games on the screen is really radically different from like watching the screen because you're, you're literally like projecting yourself into the screen. When you're like playing a video game, whatever space you're looking at, you're like this little chunk of pixels here, or you're like, you're, you're projecting your mind into the space of the screen. And that sort of relationship, this like projective relationships that we establish with the screen um, is something I try to really sort of reactivate in my work. And some of the visual strategies I use is, you know, using more patterns and sort of like, op- like graphics with very optical and kinetic qualities where like you can't really make out what you're, what you're seeing, it's always moving. Uh, there's this sort of tension between depth and, and, and flatness and abstraction and, and figuration. And the window is this sort of, you know, uh, very simple idea of like you're looking through an opening and there's another space that you're looking at. How do I create that with abstraction? How do I create that with, through a screen? And when it comes to create an exhibition, how do I sort of emphasize that in the experience. So when you get into the exhibition space, the first reveal room, there's literally nothing. It's black and there's one screen. And this is, it could be a window, it could be something else, but it's basically the only sort of like visual element that becomes part of your field of vision. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the, the also like the act of minting a work online and how you're always sort of like stuck within like a specific like graphical user interface, whether it's on OpenSea or like another website. And you don't really have like a, um, it's like, like an optimal relationship with the work you're, you're sort of like minting or, or, or collecting. And so here I was hoping to create a more, I guess like a more optimal experience with the work when you can, it's, it's just you and the work and nothing else. Yeah, and it really gets also to your fascination with screens and our attraction to screens and how mm-hmm. tantalizing they can they can they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, could, could you say something about who inspired you um, to really focus so closely um, on screens? There's a, a British artist actually, Bridget Riley, has been like a huge inspiration for me for all her like optical paintings and especially how um, you know. She also conveyed idea of landscapes through uh, abstraction and optical art. Um, but I talk a lot about the Vesulkas, uh, Stena and Woody Vesulkas, as an inspiration. Uh, Stena and Woody Vesulkas were uh, are, um, a couple of like early video art pioneer who were like doing a lot of experimentation with analog video signal. And there's that, they had like a recent interview in the New York Times and they were talking about this piece called Noise Fields from 1974. 
Um, and I think what they said, they said like, what we like about this work is that it's like looking at a fire. And I think there is this visceral sort of attraction that we have for screens, whether it's like a cathode ray tube or a screen like that, for the, the flicker, the lights, the motion, like the, the way a screen operates as a mechanical and digital display that is really untapped. We don't really talk about that. We talk about the contents, but we don't talk about like the sort of like physiological relationship that we have with screens. And I think in my work that plays a big part because I have this sort of, you know, like growing up with, uh, you know, early computer graphics who are like extremely sort of optical and mesmerizing and hypnotizing. When you're a kid, you, you establish this relationship with screens where all of a sudden you're like completely like hypnotized. And that's something I try to sort of like re reactivate in my work. And yeah, it's interesting and it's a challenge to try and develop a language around that because it's, it's you know, we talked about it earlier, like even for like video arts, like people like the Vestulkes have tried to establish a sort of vocabulary and language around that, but it's really hard. Maybe there's more of a language for that when you look at um, abstraction in painting because people talk about the thickness of the paint, they talk about the relationship to the canvas, they talk about the gestural aspects, but then all of a sudden you're in front of a screen and it's like a whole, a whole new set of, of parameters. But yeah, in the end, like this sort of visceral attraction to the light of the screen that is like almost like the visceral attraction to the light of a fire, that's something that plays a big part, I think, in, in my work and in waterfalls, especially. Yeah. It's interesting if you think of like experimental video work, which in its own way played out that trajectory of being dissatisfied with representational work, which is somehow, you know, imbued in the, in the, in the nature of, um, of, of, of video mm -hmm. and you of course have this long trajectory in painting dealing, dealing with abstraction which seems pretty there now and then in the NFT world I think you, you, you could say that there's this new interest in abstraction mm -hmm. in, in different ways obviously in generative art mm -hmm. and you situate yourself like in an interesting way to that I think because you use imaging software and you kind of excavate the um, aesthetic of a very specific type of abstraction mm -hmm. and um, take a lot of care to, to bring that out. Um, so I would like to ask you how, you how you think of your own work kind of in the, in the history of abstraction. That's a tough question. <laughs> uh, I, I'll start by saying that retrospectively now, uh, when I look at my experience of early computer graphics from an early age onward, I, I always look at computer graphics from the 80s and the 90s and, and even before that as this like really important chapter in the history of abstraction that isn't really talked about because all of a sudden the visual language of abstraction like shapes, um, colors, rhythms become reactivated through moving image and um, I think what really interests me about using that visual language isn't so much to try and like create work that reference that particular era of the 80s or the 90s, but it's more like to try and take that work and uh, bring it in conversation with a broader conversation of abstraction. Because I'm really influenced by abstraction in painting, I'm really influenced by abstraction in experimental film, in kinetic art, in optical art, and that's, that's what really like also inspires me and gets injected into the work. Um, so, I mean, that's one convoluted way to answer your question. And like the other one is that to me, abstraction is always in relation with uh, 
memory and with natural forces or atmospheric forces. And that's kind of how I, I sort of ground my experience of abstraction. I look at abstraction as this sort of vessel to sort of how do I relate to abstract shapes? My, my way of relating to them is to create these analogies and to be like, is this a building? Is this a mountain? Is this a body of water? Is this uh, a representation of the wind? Uh, and that's kind of how I always relate to uh, my own practice of abstraction. Um, and yeah, like another, another aspect which maybe responds to your question is that you know, when I was in art school, I was like really jealous of painters. I would like look at painters in their studios and they had like their little brushes and their paints of tubes and their canvases. And I was like, they have their little setup and it's so perfect. And, and they have like all this history of craftsmanship that they can relate to. And when you're on your computer, you have some of that, but it's like, it's just a black hole. Cause it's like, are oh, you working with imaging software? Are you working with video editing software as you're working with code? And sometimes you work on all these things. So I was like, okay, I need to like reduce like the amount of possibilities. And I really was like longing to create this sort of very focused practice of working with computer graphics with a very limited set of tools that I could have on the go and that I could take anywhere with me. And effectively now I just work on a laptop and it doesn't matter which version of Photoshop I use or which version of Flash I use or which version of like an imaging software I use. I can always do what I do because the, I guess like the, the tools I use within these imaging softwares are the backbone of any imaging software. It's literally like something that was there in like the first version of Photoshop and is still there in the new versions of Photoshop. So yeah, maybe I relate, I relate to abstraction in relation to, you know, the sort of ideas of, of craftsmanship, especially that you see maybe in, um, you know, more in painting so than like in digital arts. Uh, yeah, does that, does yeah, that answer yeah. your question? <laughs> I think yeah. so. Um, we, we, we've talked about the inspiration for mm -hmm. Waterfalls and the physical exhibition setup. Mm -hmm. like to talk about the kind of edition of 100 a bit more. Um, mm -hmm. If you're a generative artist, it's pretty easy to produce an edition of 100 in a way. It's actually a small edition size. Yeah. You produce them each piece by hand yeah. um, and you select them and make changes. So maybe you could share something about your creative process of how you select the 100 works mm -hmm. and how you proceed in, in, in selecting them. Yeah, so I actually made 160 something works and when I work on collections I always create a lot of them um, and then I proceed with elimination. I take, I, you know, I eliminate the, the, the ones I don't like. With Waterfalls it was particular because the there was a first iteration of the project 10 years ago for an exhibition in France, in, in Grenoble, at the Centre d'Art Bastille. So I had made these like versions and then I, had, I kept working on the project but I had never had like a, another release or anything and it felt like, it, it, it felt like a direction specifically with uh, my practice of digital abstraction that needed to be re-explored. You know, when I, like a painter or somebody does drawing, they're going to pick a topic or they're going to pick like a certain type of study and they're going to exhaust it. They're going to make like hundreds of versions to the point where like you get sick of it. And I was really excited about engaging in that type of process. And so once I had made like my 160 animation, they were all the same color. They were all like shades of green, uh, green to black. Um, I, 
I tried to like pick the one that felt like the most successful, which is completely arbitrary and subjective, but I also try to create groupings of works. Um, because when I, when I thought of waterfalls, it's, it's funny I gave it the title waterfalls, because like a lot of the works are inspired by waterfalls, but most works are inspired by the ocean and by sort of like water motions by the ocean. So I looked at the whole collection and I tried to select these different motions and rhythm that were the most evocative of something that was um, relating to that liquid form, to the ocean, to something that you could see, um, you know, looking at water. Some, some of the works are um, effectively doing that, where you look like you're looking at, it seems like you're looking at a body of water moving, uh, either from afar or from up close. And some of them are more, to me, they, they feel more like you're looking at water through a glass surface, like either like a glass window and water, like you have like, I don't know, like if there's like a rainstorm and you're looking through a window and like the, the rain hitting the glass creates this sort of pattern. So some of the works are sort of like inspired by that. Some of them are inspired by like looking at water through refracted glasses and how like glass how can glass distort like your, your vision? Um, and yeah, then something we talked about is like how to create like different colors for the works. Uh, so that, that was the, the second part. Once I had selected the 100 works, I started uh, creating this different color, um, this sort of like different color combination. And there were like two, two important inspirations from that. One was early video game design how like in early video game level designs, you have a lot of uh, computer systems that had like eight colors to work with. So when you have like 10 levels, how do you, how do you use like such a limited color palette to give uh, uh, you know, a strong identity to each level? How do, you, how do you evoke a specific sense of place, a specific sense of like, hot or cold, a specific sense of, like how do you create a narrative through these landscapes that are like early computer uh, game levels through like a very lim limited amount of colors. That was, a, that was an inspiration and the, the other inspiration was uh, color palettes in, in graphic designs. And I was, I was talking to you about this website called Color Lovers where you, people create their own color palettes and you have five colors, um, five like big squares of colors like that and uh, people give them titles. So the one is gonna be called like uh, Hawaiian Eruption. And it's like three shades of like dark brown with like two shades of bright red. One is gonna be called Cherry Blossoms and it's gonna be two shades of blues and like shades of pink. And um, I really love this sort of relationship, again, with abstraction where you are given five colors and you're supposed to imagine a landscape based on that. Um, that's. That's something that always kind of plays a part. So I, I effectively like looked at a lot of early computer video game levels, especially to see how water was translated, sometimes to look realistic, sometimes to look like bodies of waters on an alien planet. And then I effectively looked at a lot of color palettes, um, you know, to see how certain sort of elements like that I relate to like atmospheric elements can be translated with like just five or six colors. That's another important element about the series. Like each work that you'll see in the exhibition, each work is made of 72 frames and has six colors only. So they can look like there's a lot of colors. There's actually like only six colors in each animation. 
I love that idea of like being creative through restraint, like mm-hmm. restraining your options and then generating um, the creative process out of uh, out of out of that restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we could open up um, the conversation to questions from the audience. I think the 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 optical illusion aspect happened a little bit by accident, and I think the moire pattern that I was the moire patterning techniques that I talked about earlier. It's something that happened by accident in my work around like 2009. I was playing with like different layers on Photoshop, and then because I use hard edge pixel uh, textures and elements, all of a sudden the overlap of these two of two layers created this sort of moire patterns. And yeah, so at first it was really accidental, and then I started like looking more into it, and um, then it became more and more part of my practice. And then I discovered optical artists, uh, you know, like. Um, Victor Vazarelli or Jesus Rafael Soto, like artists that have been like uh, pretty prominent in op art and kinetic art and used more patterns in sculptures actually, where you have like two layers and as you walk around the sculptures, it creates, uh, it creates the optical illusion. Um, and that has informed also like my practice of sculptures where I've actually made like uh, sculptural works like that. I think like the, the, the reason why I decided to work with this sort of like visual element that have like really strong optical and kinetic properties comes from this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of interest for early computer graphics and early computer abstractions. And it was also like, um, it was also a time when I created my first blog in like 2008, 2009, where I was publishing my work online. And so there were like these strategies very quickly of like, how do I retain the attention of a viewer that comes on my blog. How do I create these like little visual moments to retain their attention? So I think like the the, the visual strategies pertaining to like uh, optical art and kinetic art in my work definitely came from like a strong interest for that particular visual language. And there was also like almost like a strategic uh, sort of move too to like, because at the time you had like lots of tumblers, you had lots of blogs and um, one of my strategies as an artist, like doing like early net art, was like how do I how do I exist within that visual landscape? Like early web, where uh, you have like a million sort of uh, websites to browse through, and how do I create something unique? And then eventually, it just became more and more part of my work, and a more I guess like informed or or educated or researched sort of uh, practice. Also, like in terms of like relationship to the to the artwork, I, I love Soto's work because some of them you can actually enter them, yeah. like the one with the ropes like that. And so like as you move around them, they create this more and then you can actually enter them. And like this invitation to enter the work, I mean, that's something I feel like definitely like influences me a lot when I, when I make this kind, of, this kind of work dealing with, with abstraction, for sure. It's like wanting to you know, dive into the screen a little bit. I mean, I haven't had enough experiences with Metaverse yet. I think one aspect of virtual space that I'm excited about is more like virtual architecture, actually, and, and like designing architectures. I've tried like different Metaverse with like VR sets, and to me, like this whole experience in and of itself is just like so radically different from like entering an exhibition and being in a space. And I. I feel like much more appetite and excitement to create spaces and to work with the scale of a space because I feel like I, I control the parameters a little bit better. 
With a VR environment, I really feel out of my comfort zone for now because I don't think I have like enough experience. Uh, but I do, I'm working, I did this series early on on Tezos actually of like these little architectural pavilions. Um, and I'm working on revisiting these pavilions to like actually make them fun functional space for, for Metaverse because that's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, but it's, it's sort of like a whole other, I guess, like part of my practice that has almost not much to do with abstraction. It's more like there's like architectural studies and how to how to explore like certain aspect of architecture more for like something that becomes like a like a vector of fantasies rather than like a real architecture with like dealing with material contingencies. So I think that that would probably be my first. Uh, if I do something soon with, with Metaverse, it'll probably deal more with, with architectures and with abstraction, yeah. Painters and like the process of painters have really influenced me for that. I was like constantly like spying on painters when I was in art school and like looking at their process when they make like big series and they're like, okay, that one's out, that one's out, that one's out. Like, um, so when I worked on waterfalls, um, there's like, I guess there's like different categories of motions in the series, some of them have like vertical motions, some of them have lateral motions, some of them have like pulsating motions, some of them have more like chaotic motion. And every time, at the beginning when I was creating all the works, the 160 works, um, I was focusing on one motion at a time and just like making a lot of variations around that motion. And then I was looking at them all and I was like, okay, that one is really repetitive of that one. That one doesn't add much to that one. And, and so that's kind of that's kind of how I process with elimination. It's like very, looking at them very formally, you know. That one is too close to that one. It's not uh, worth it. And I mean, a collection of 100 works already for me is like a huge collection. Uh, and I guess one of my biggest worries was to like try and maintain a certain level of quality and consistency through the 100 and that each work was actually quite unique and not like a, a like a small rehash of another one. So 100 feels like a lot already. Like so, there's the other 60 that don't think they'll ever see the light of day. Like they're they're gone. Uh, and that's one thing of my practice is like I probably like put like less than 10% of like the work I produce. Like I I create like constantly, 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 and then what makes it out publicly is like a tiny portion of what I create, because I feel like that's the only way of like keeping things at a, at a certain level, yeah. I, I feel like I, with, with digital work, I always feel like I need to ground things or bridge them to something that's physical or material. Um, when I, you know, like when I, when I create an exhibition in space, I'm like, what's the metaphor, what's the analogies that I want to use for the space, like it, it always needs to be grounded into something. So when I approach abstraction, it's the same thing. I read abstraction, and like I automatically try to create a link with like something figurative or something material, something that's gonna ground the experience and sort of like lead it. Uh, and yeah, I guess that's my approach, and I can't seem to get out of that. Um, and even when I look at abstract works from other artists that I love, I I just do that. You know, I look at a Paul Klee, and I see like little objects floating in space. I don't look at it as like something abstract. I see like, you know, any, any abstract work I'm going to sell, like, not rationalize it, but like ground it into like a, a material, physical, figurative sort of experience. It's inspiring and exciting to me to like read like Bridget Riley's interviews and like see like series like, um, 
like the cataract series or like the blaze series where like the cataract series it looks like a water surface but it's effectively just like these like curves and when you hear Bridget Riley talk about curve it's super interesting because it's like it's very specific about each curve has like specific properties and then like these different curves next to each other but then effectively this very minimal language of visual abstraction crew I can't help but seeing a landscape. So when I hear her saying that it effectively is inspired by a landscape, it's like kind of reassuring. Uh, and same thing with Blaze, where like Blaze, it's like this circular composition. And I believe it's inspired by like looking at the sun and like the sort of like, sort of like optical effect that you get looking at the sun. How can you like translate that into just a black and white lines, concentric lines? So, um, yeah, I think like discovering the work of Bridget Riley was also like a probably like an affirmation of like pushing further into that direction for sure. It has to deal with I think like these restrictions. I I've always tend to I really love working with restraints and I think that also like connects back to like you know abstraction in painting where like people are like okay, my visual language is going to be just that. Uh, when I started publishing animated GIFs in like 2008, 2009, they had to be like pretty small too, because you know, like computers and web browsers, like if you were like posting like a 15 megabytes or like a 25 megabyte GIF at the time, it would like kill your browser or like sometimes it would take like five minutes to load. So there was this like, this sort of like technical constraints and then this technical constraint became like part of my process because I enjoyed them. And um, the 72 frames, I, I have like this sort of catalog of different like, uh, backgrounds and foregrounds that I use when I create moire pattern animation, which are the, the, the sort of elements I use for, for waterfalls. And like some of them are 72 frames, some of them are 144 frames, some of them are like, there are multiple of 72. Um, there's certain textural elements and certain motions that I can get with the ones with 72 frames that I can get with 144 and vice versa. So it just becomes this sort of like very like, vernacular, formal, sort of like sets of tools that I come to use. Uh, and usually like the way I'll approach it, which is kind of nerdy, is like, well, if I can get something with 72 frames, it's more exciting than if I go to like 144 frames. Like I almost like always trying to like diminish the amount of elements. And if it really sort of impacts the work negatively, then I, I'll, I'll make the work like bigger or like longer. But yeah, like this whole idea of like reducing things as much as possible without losing too much of like, I guess like a, a rich visual experience is always kind of part of, a, of my process. I feel like on like a very intuitive level, I don't even think about it. I just, that's kind of what I gravitate towards. I've, you know what? I've always been like very cautious of categories because I felt like they put you in a box and then you kind of have to like, it's almost like a, you have to speak to that category more than you have to like develop your work. So, uh, and because generative art, usually like most of the artists use code, I never felt like my work was effectively generative, but I would say that if somebody consider my work generative, that makes me really happy. And it depends on like everybody's definition of generative art. So I have no, like, I have like no yes or no answer to like, is my work generative or not? I, I think my work is in conversation with generative art a lot. I see a lot of generative art that really inspires me and like stimulates me uh, visually, but also like, um, you know, since um, my involvement in NFT was like really fortunate to 
get a closer look at generative artist process, like Pixel Fool, who's a dear friend of mine, who's like been showing me how he creates the work because I literally have like the worst coder on the planet. So he kind of like walked me through it and showed me how everything works, how he divides his code, and it gave me like a newfound, uh, you know, appreciation for it. I was appreciating it before, but now I have like a, I guess like a, a better understanding or like more literacy onto like how the work is effectively made. So yeah, it, it, it really, you know, it really is a conversation that is happening between, I think, like my, my work and a lot of the generative art that I see it. There's a lot of things that I see that inspires me and I think like some of the things I do maybe inspire some generative artists. Uh, there is this thing with my work where when you see it, you would tend to think that it's generative and then when you learn about the process, it's usually surprising because my process is uh, based on manual processes. Um, so yeah, I guess there's no, I don't have like a yes or no answer. It's, uh, it, it's, it really depends on like someone's definition of generative art. I see like some people out there who have like a very strict sort of uh, approach to like what generative art is. Um, some others have like a much more like, you know, open-ended version of the definition. Yeah, I guess that would be my, my very diplomatic answer. <laughs> it's really both like, it was really extremely challenging and extremely exciting to like work on this project with Bright Moments because I feel like, I feel like this kind of exhibition where you do like live minting and someone comes to an exhibition to view an artwork or someone comes to an exhibition to actually collect a work and go through like a specific experience of collecting a work, it just rethinks completely uh, what an exhibition is. I would say that before this exhibition, I had like a very traditional way of like approaching exhibition, which is like, here's a space, how do you install the work? That's it. Um, and I had to like rethink that. And I, I think I went to like very simple and minimal decision with this exhibition because I was really kind of like, wow, this is like a whole other set of parameters to, to deal with. But I'm really enthusiastic about that on multiple levels, just on like a formal level, because I think it completely, re it's like a way to completely rethink what an exhibition can be. Um, I think it's also like a way to involve the viewer into the exhibition and what the exhibition is in a much more involved way and sometimes in a much more democratic way. We were talking about, you know, um, you know, exhibitions like this where you have like an open edition that people can come and mint at like a very low price, all of a sudden like the spectator and the viewer is actively participating to the exhibition, which is to me like extremely refreshing and exciting compared to like, you know, some of like the classic strategies that like today's like cultural institution use when they install works. And I know they're making a lot of efforts with like audio guides and didactics and things like that. But then as a viewer, when you can actually well, you can actually come to an exhibition to buy a piece when the exhibition design is going to be conceived thinking of your experience buying the piece, then you feel like you're, you feel much more involved and you feel like the exhibition speaks much more to you as, as a person. And yeah, I'm really enthusiastic about that because it, it brings all these new sets of parameters, but it also, I think, brings exhibition design and art in general in like a really interesting direction that's maybe you know that potentially is like much less elitist and much more like democratic and much more of an exchange between 
the artists, the organizers, the audience. Um, so yeah, the, the, this project was actually really exciting and had my brain going in all sorts of directions because I had a really hard time envisioning what it would be to come into a space to mint a work in live and it really kind of pushed against some uh, so like very rigid conceptions I had of like what an exhibition is. Uh, and yeah, I think it's, it's like extremely exciting and I'm super enthusiastic to see like where that is gonna, where that is gonna lead us to. Great, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.